invite you to turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We have rounded the corner, completing fully one-third of John's gospel, the fourth gospel, the spiritual gospel, if you will, which is comprised, of course, of 21 chapters, and we finished the first seven last week, and now we will attempt to launch into chapter 8 with an interesting story. Um, And you'll find that our text this morning in your Bible is set in brackets. Do you all see that? Set in brackets because that particular story is not found in the earliest and most reliable extant manuscripts. So I'm saving you all of the homework, and you can do it on your own time if you want, but suffice it to say that there's enough evidence that this is a legitimate, has a legitimate place in the scripture, that that is the sole reason why we will expound it here this morning. It's valuable. It's, uh, it's interesting to study what the arguments are to and fro- from, but the first time it shows up in a full codex, is a codex Biza, uh, and that's in the 300s A.D., um, there are certain commentators, the early fathers, that didn't comment on this, and some that did. And so uh, there's, there's some things worth looking at. Nevertheless, it's in the scriptures. There's enough reason to allow its legitimacy to be there. It fits perfectly where we are right here um, in the story that we finished up chapter 7 when they were trying to arrest Jesus, and you remember they were unable to. They failed yet again to arrest him, and so they disband. So the last verse, if you will, of chapter 7 is verse 53, but it's attached to verse 1 of chapter 8 for that reason. It belongs to that bit that um, is sort of a, I wouldn't say even a spurious portion of text, but is clearly one that's brought under uh, examination and scrutiny. So, But we're going to go through it. And we see enough merit there to do just that uh, without going into the high weeds of all the pros and cons. I'd rather get to the story. Spending a week with the Lord in private as he deals with this woman that they've drugged down into the midst of those he's teaching the next morning at the temple and seeing how he deals with the issue and how he treats her is significantly impacting. We would be remiss if we missed the import of how Jesus deals with this issue. They think they have him here. They're convinced. They weren't able to arrest him. This is the next morning. We've got you now. There's a woman that's been caught up in adultery, caught in the act What do you say? We know what Moses says. What do you say? We've got you. And they think they do, but as we learn more about who God is and who Christ is, they don't know, as usual, what they're talking about. It would be a mistake to think that this story in any way mitigates the importance of this sin. It's a serious sin. Or to think that Jesus is making light of this violation of the seventh commandment, seventh of the ten. He's not making light of adultery. But there's certainly some something here. His 
handily dismissing the woman's accusers the way he does is, is amazing. It's, it's noteworthy. It, it reminds us of the whole of who God is. He is just. He is righteous. He is the God of wrath. But there's so much more in terms of the fullness and the comprehensive nature of his attributes that come at least to the fore of your mind as you see how he's dealing with her and what God wants from us. Indeed, as Jesus preached in John 17, verse 3, eternal life is to know God. To know God is eternal life. And so we grow in our knowledge and the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can understand more about who our God is. But what a powerful story. This passage, we could say, reveals perhaps, arguably, the most powerful, the most utilitarian in terms of its usefulness, and the most winsome aspects of the rule of the Son of God, the Son of Man. This advocacy of His, that He would come to sinners who have offended God, is something to think about. It's something to, to clearly to look at. He is the advocate of the sinner. And we, I'm looking forward to getting into this with you. There's three words that the scripture uses that are pretty much synonymous. That is, he's an advocate, he's our intercessor, and he is our mediator. Slight differences, but all wrapped up in that one role that he has. That he does in order to make sure to secure salvation for a sinner. So first, I just want to briefly touch on these three words so that we understand what they mean. I'll give you a verse where these terms are used, and then we're going to get into the story, and we're going to wrap it up with a conclusion. So the first is, as it is in the title, Christ our Advocate. So what is an advocate? Advocatus in the Latin. What does advocatus mean? It's a call to one side. It's somebody who pleads or intercedes or speaks for another. An advocate in another definition is a person who publicly steps up to lend support for a particular cause on behalf of another who is incapable of doing so. To support speak in support or urge by argument, recommend publicly. You see all of these definitions wrapped up in the story that we're about to read. They went each to their own house, begins chapter 8. That is, those who were trying to arrest him, because this is connected and contextually with what just took place. Those of the Sanhedrin sent the officers out to arrest him, and they failed, and they gave up, and they walked away. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, verse 2, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So he went to the Mount of Olives. He's back down at the temple again. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the 
in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Father, we thank you for this story. We're so blessed by it already. Just seeing the love of Christ there in this tender moment with this woman caught in a very serious sin. I pray, Lord, that as always, that I would have the means by your spirit to preach these great truths with accuracy. But Lord, you must add this story's efficacy. You must, you must impress upon the hearts of those who are here today what you would have them hear. May we all have ears to hear that you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Christ, our advocate, we find that word in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So this is parakletos, the uh, parakleto is to call alongside. The paraclete is the word used for the Holy Spirit because it means comforter. It it. It means mediator, intercessor. So we see that other two words coming involved here. So it's definitely synonymous. So this is an advocate. I chose this particular word for the title because we're most familiar with that idea of advocacy, especially as it has to do with our American jurisprudence, those who represent us to defend us against some charge. So Christ is also our mediator. First Timothy two five says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So mediator is the Greek mesites. Mesites, it means a go-between, an intercessor. There is that word again, and a reconciler. So Jesus is an advocate. He's a defender. He will come alongside in public to stand up for someone. He will intercede before the judge to make the case on their behalf. Somebody who is otherwise incapable of doing so. That's the idea. We would be most helpless, wouldn't we, if we had to make our own defense? Wow. Hebrews 9.15 There is... Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the mediator of a new covenant 
This is not the Mosaic covenant anymore, is it? We aren't saved by law keeping. Just keep that in the hopper of your mind while we look at how he deals with the woman caught in adultery. So that's the new covenant, right? So we have this mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, which would be referring to Mosaic law. They violated it. They cannot keep it. They cannot be saved by an attempt to keep it. So he's a mediator. He's the one who stands between. How does he have that role? He has that role simply by virtue of the fact that he paid for, he propitiated our sins. He, he expiated our sins for us as substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ at the cross. And so we'll continue to unpack that as we go. One more word in our introduction here. Christ is also referred to as our intercessor. For this, I wanted to show you Isaiah 53, and you're all familiar with that powerful chapter as it reveals the suffering servant in his role there. He has several, there's sort of a, um, a transition that occurs in the prophet Isaiah and in, in the prophecy of Isaiah from beginning to end. In the beginning chapters, he's more... Uh, more uh, expressed as the commander of the army. He goes into, uh, in subsequent chapters, to be referred to as a king. And now he is the, uh, the priest. He is offering himself as a sacrifice as we, as we go through this. But I'm looking at verse 12 by itself that uses that term. He poured, Jesus poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So this is uh, paga in the Hebrew. It means to come between, to cause, to entreat, appeal on behalf of, to, to fall upon. He falls upon the throne of God's grace. He falls upon the throne to appeal on our behalf is the sense of the word there. Hebrews 9.24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. It's not about the brick and mortar or the stone mortar, if you will, uh, temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He willingly came and gave his life to offer himself this priesthood after the likeness of Melchizedek without beginning and without end. We would need that in order to not only get to heaven, but to be allowed to stay there. So he goes to the Father. He is the archagos. He is the captain, the, the forerunner of our salvation. He goes before us. We follow him up to this throne of grace. He appeals to the Father. And the father, as judge, says not guilty. And we'll talk about why. But let's start out with our text here now. The beginning of chapter 8 starts with 753. They went to each his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. 
all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? So as I mentioned, they're trying to trap him. Obviously, we get that. The text even discloses that. So they said this to test him. In what way? I mean, we don't have to go much further than Leviticus 20, verse 10. Makes it pretty clear. It says this. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely, surely, surely be put to death. So... Here's the issue. If he stands up and he agrees with them and says, yes, that's what it says. She must be stoned until she's dead. He would be considered a most merciless Messiah, wouldn't he? She hadn't been tried. I mean, you brought her in. Where's the witnesses? Where's... The trial, you just, but that's what they're hoping for. Either that, or if he disagrees with them, they can accuse him of being against Moses. Remember they, when they did that with Paul in Acts? They accused him of being against Moses, which is not true. So he did neither of these things. He handles this in his classic masterful way. It's, 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 it's just really remarkable. Verse 6, this they said to test him that they might have some charge against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. So before we get to the writing on the ground, which there isn't really much to say about because it doesn't say what he wrote. So from there, the commentators love to go off into their usual speculations whether they're supported in Scripture or, or not. So we don't have that information. He's writing on the ground, some speculate, of course, that he's writing their sins, and others say he's just doodling to show them clearly that he knows what they're doing, that they're trying to trap him, and he's not going to fall into it. Who knows? But what's striking, I think it should be to us, is that they aren't concerned at all with mosaic justice. They dragged this woman down before him in his midst. So there's the people there that he was teaching. Where's, where's the trial? No, what do you say? Pick up stones or not? That's basically what they're saying. But nor are they concerned at all about the shaming and humiliating of this woman. That's what strikes you. They want to trap him. They want to charge him. And it doesn't matter who they use or how they get it done. So here's the theological conundrum that remains through the ages. How do you reconcile God's justice with his love? If you have her stoned, God's just. He had Moses write Leviticus 20, right? So... She needs to be stoned. But then there's God's love. There's God's love that's marked by words like mercy, 
grace, compassion, patience, kindness, goodness. Does stoning her to death on the spot satisfy that part of who God is? Not at all. So, these two things coexist, that he is a just, righteous God of wrath ready to be poured out on those who violate his law, but then you have his love as described. The human mind can't reconcile those two. We accept them both, but we can't reconcile them. We can't see, what do you do about this? How do you continue to reveal yourself as God to your create, creation who bears your image and likeness in a way that makes sense to us? Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So that's our God. Jeremiah 9. Now there's a progression here. I did this deliberately. Jeremiah 9.24. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, he's saying through his prophet, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, comma, justice, yeah, and righteousness. He put those all in one verse. Now what do we do? Uh, he practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. He delights in them all, saith the Lord. What, what do we do with this? <laughs> I know what our default setting is. Do you want to say it? Do you want to <laughs> confess it here publicly? Legalistic, moralistic. Judgmentalists. That's what we are out of the womb. What do you think's going on downstairs with the toddlers? That's not fair. That's mine. No. <laughs> it's true. Now we're working this thing out. Watch this now. Isaiah 45, 21. And there is no God beside me. This is the key. A righteous God and... A savior. Now we've got something. Right? It can satis he can satisfy his justice, withhold his wrath because of his love, his great patience and mercy. His kindness is what leads us to repentance. And there's going to be a savior, isn't there? It's, it's going to be God. He is righteous and a savior. Well, that's... Romans 3, isn't it? Verse 24 to 26. He is both just and the justifier. Amen. Praise the Lord. How did he figure this out? Oh, that's right. He's God. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He can't wait to extend you grace. He knows and he... He's familiar with our failures and our sins, our repetitive issues over and over again. And he waits to be gracious. 
and therefore he exalts himself because he waits to be gracious to you. Isaiah 30, 18. He, therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. God is exalted by showing mercy. Make him any less just? No, he didn't sin. <laughs> He's the judge. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. It just gets more and more deep, more and more powerful. Jeremiah 33, 8, listen to this. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Whew. Maybe that's just Old Testament stuff. Do you remember 1 John 1, 9? If you confess your sin, he is what? He's two things. What are they? Faithful and what? And just. Do what? Do two things. Not just forgive you, but to, for, to cleanse you. To forgive you and cleanse you both. He's the faithful and just one. Who is this we're talking about? Because God is a spirit. Who is he talking about? <laughs> There's only one. There's only one. Jesus bent down, our text says. He's... Teaching, he stands up, he bends down, he writes in the dirt. He's ignoring them to communicate his full awareness. My belief that this is a trap. You're not going to do that. I know what you're doing. Because Jesus can see what? Their, their hearts. Yeah. Uh -uh. I'm not going to give you this weird victory that you, which wouldn't be a victory anyway because you don't even understand who I am you don't even understand in the fullness of the revelations of God that have been revealed you pick and choose the ones that suit your ideology your idea the way you can keep control on religion with your Sanhedrin on high, with your long robes, tassels, phylacteries, out of the womb, legalist, moralist, judgmentalists. Verse 7, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. They continued to ask. They're still convinced they have him. I think it's because he, he's not saying anything and he's bending down and he's just doodling in the dirt, whatever it is. We got him. 
That's why they keep at, that's why they're pressing it. They're tenacious. They they've got him now, right? They're not giving up. But here she's caught in what? In adultery. Caught in the act. Okay. They say, we don't even know if she was set up. If, if, if man was sent in to seduce her so they could catch him and then they could trap you. We don't know. But are they above doing something like that? If you say, oh, yeah, they wouldn't do that. You don't know the, you don't know the Pharisees very well, right? Here's how he describes his people, which is the people we're seeing dealing with Jesus right here and now in this passage. Here's how he describes his own people through the prophets. The prophets were his mouthpiece, right? So he's speaking these things and describing his people. Now hold on to your hats. Gets pretty bracing. Isaiah 57, 3. He describes them, these religious hypocrites, as, quote, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Isaiah 57, 4 to 5. Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit, you who burn with lust among the oaks? This is God talking to his own people, the very people that are trying to trap Jesus with a woman caught in adultery. Are you getting this? The irony. What is Jesus thinking as he's bent down like that? He's, he's all cognizant of all of these because he is God. He is saying these things to them through the Old Testament. You're going to bring this woman, this poor woman here, and you're going to prop her up in the midst of all of these people and try to ply your dirty, malicious, wicked ways to entrap me. This is who you are. That's why he says at the Sermon on the Mount, remember? Matthew 5 and verse 28, when he's talking about adultery, what does, he, what does he clarify there? Is it just those who actually commit it physically that are guilty? No. He says, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, he's indicting them there on the Sermon on the Mount. You guys are adulterers. You're hypocrites. You're whited tombs, all pretty on the outside and whitewashed, but inside you're filled with dead men's bones. You're a pretty cup on the outside, but inside it's filthy. That's you. Jeremiah 5, 7 to 8, when I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions and neighing for his neighbor's wife. And you're bringing her here? That's you, he could say to them very easily, but he doesn't. Jeremiah 23.9 says very simply, for the land is full of adulterers. Ezekiel 22. So all of the prophets here, Ezekiel 22, verse 11, one commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. Another in you violates his sister and his father's daughter. And you're bringing her here. Hosea 7, 4, they are all adulterers, plain and simple. 
I love this part. I love this clause. Then he stood up. The son of God looks them in the eye. That's her advocate. It's like, yeah. Stands up with no fear of man. Face to face, interceding as her advocate. Imagine how she feels in shame and utter embarrassment. Let him who is without sin among you be the first one to throw a stone. In Hebraic jurisprudence, the one who witnessed first was the first one to pick up a stone and throw it. So it's a play off of that law or that rule, that principle that they had. Verse 8, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. So then he squares off with them, says one statement, let the first one who is without sin throw a stone at her and just bends down and starts doodling in the dirt again. (laughs) This is to be admired, my friends. Zero fear of man. This is her advocate. This is her intercessor. This is her mediator. So by bending down, however, you could look at this more mercifully. He's giving them a chance to just slink off, and they do. How do they do it? It says, verse 9, And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. I would suggest to you, that's because they had a longer rap sheet. The older ones have, oh, I don't want to dig that up. (laughs) You know, and the younger guys are following. Oh, I thought we were going to stone her. Oh, well, I'm glad we're leaving because I know about my sin. Yeah, so does he. So does he. Every secret sin that we think is secret, as the psalmist writes, is wide open to him. And yet look at his patience and grace, his mercy. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman then standing before him. Verse 10, Jesus I love this. Jesus stood up. She's no rag to be exploited. He stood up. He loves her. And he's standing up for her. Said to her, I bet he loved saying this. Woman, I could see him looking around. He's done doodling. Where are they? Does he need an answer to that question? No. It's like he didn't need to ask Adam where he was either, yeah? (laughs) Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, she said, No one, Lord. And then this, And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. No one, Lord. 
Neither do I condemn you. They all walked away. And Jesus remained there with her. Fix on this scene. Look at it. Look at her. Look at him. Listen to what he says. Neither do I condemn you. John 3.17, if you remember it, when we covered it, for God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world. Why, why didn't he have to come and do that? We're already condemned. We already know the violations of his law that we violated. But in order that the world might be what? Saved through him. You see what he's doing here? He's living out every verse he ever preached. Every letter, every line of all the discourses of his we've covered so far. He's showing it to us. Micah 7.18 Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. Hey, wait a minute. Is he wink at sin? Is he ignoring some? Just hang on. I got some more verses for you. Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Who is like this God who is just, righteous, a God of wrath, a God of unlimited power? Who is like that that pardons iniquity and passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in his steadfast love. That's it. If you don't, if you're not able to connect that, you will not unlock this great and glorious truth. Yes, you've sinned. You've sinned repetitively. But where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Always outpaces it. Why? Because I delight in that. I delight to demonstrate my graciousness. He says, passing over the transgression. When I got to that part of it, it reminded me of 2 Corinthians 5. This is perhaps a little bit more familiar. 2 Corinthians 5, listen to this carefully, verse 17 to 21. This is one of the most powerful passages in this context in the whole of the New Testament. You're familiar with it. Verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. How did he do that? What does it say after that? Not 
counting their trespasses against him. That is who God is. I'm not going to deal with your sin now. I'm not going to hit you over the head with my law. Why? Because of my love. My love is patient. It's kind. It's long-suffering. Right? Not counting their trespasses. I'm not dealing with their trespasses. Why? Because this is post-resurrection. This is post-sacrifice on behalf of their sins. So Paul can say, and Christos. So in Christ, he's reconciling the world to himself. This is already done in the full economy of our theology. We understand this was already done. You're just coming to the knowledge of that. It's just a matter of his timing. His sovereign timing. We thought it involved us a little more than that, didn't we? Were you there when he wrote your name in the book of life? The world wasn't created yet. Some of us are old, but we're not that old. Verse 20, or Verse 19, finish the last clause, entrusting to us this message, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. He gets it now. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He passes over the transgression, Micah 7. He doesn't count their trespasses against them. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his Glory to overlook an offense. Because you could drop the hammer right away, couldn't you? Wouldn't you have that right? Wouldn't he have that right? You've offended. Boom! Why? Because we're legalistic, moralistic, judgmentalists. It comes easy for us comes harder is the patience, the grace, to overlook an offense. This is forbearing love. What glory does any man have but to reflect the image of God in his forbearing love? What does that mean? That, that means that we look like Jesus when he doesn't rise up and say, that's right, you violated the law, you're caught, get ready to be stoned to death. Well, in our law, the first witness, the first one, should pick up the first stone. Oh, but you want God to overlook your sin your hypocrisy. You're hoping for grace and patience and kindness and mercy. What about her? 
Because I, you know, when I first read that proverb, I couldn't quite understand. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. And, and that's when 2 Corinthians 5 came along. Because I thought, where have I seen that before? That's where it is. 2 Corinthians 5 that we just read, not counting their trespasses against them. Go back into the Old Testament in Micah seven eighteen, passing over transgression. Thank God, yeah? Thank God. I had 33 years of that. I could have been hammered over and over. My whole life was sinful. Of course he'll deal with it. It's not saying he won't deal with your sin. Where has he dealt with your sin? On the cross of Jesus Christ. So it glorifies the glory of man is accomplished when we reflect any part of who God is. That's what the Proverbs referring to. It's to his glory, the glory he was intended to reflect. But because we're fallen, we typically don't do that. When he overlooks an offense, you look like God because otherwise, how do we deal with an offense? I gotcha. That's what they're thinking. We got you now. Acts 13, 38 to 40, we find Paul preaching in Pisidian Antioch, remember, with Barnabas. And in verse 38 to 40 of Acts 13, he's preaching away. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes... That's the key to salvation, isn't it? Is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He is setting her free if she simply believes with accuracy in the one that's talking to her and the one who has become her advocate. From now on, he says, Sin no more. Jesus doesn't condemn her. He didn't come to condemn. We covered that. He doesn't say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because he knows he's headed to the cross to do just that. All she'll need to do is believe. That's it. He doesn't excuse or condone what she did. Nor does he try to defend her, does he? She's guilty of a serious sin. And sin makes you weak. You're weak when you willfully continue in sin. It's like kryptonite to Superman. You get weaker and weaker and weaker. And when God finally drops the hammer, boy, you're at your weakest place and he just crushes you, right? You don't know what forbearance is then. That's the favorite descriptive of, of mine, of his love. Because when I was weak, willfully sinning against him, and in my conscience I knew what I did was wrong, I was weak. You think you're strong because you're self-justifying what you're doing, right? But you're weak. You're weak in a way 
in that you could easily be crushed. And yet, in the forbearing act of his love, what does he do? He picks you up. The one who you offend over and over again picks you up and carries you. Where does he take you? To his cross and lays you down. And what does he say? After you receive grace, mercy, forgiveness, cleansing, what he just said to her, go, sin no more. Stop. That's his forbearing love. Romans 5, 6 to 8. For while we were still, do you know what it says? Weak. At the right time. That's when he comes. That is the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. When we were weak, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows us his what? Verse 8. You've memorized this. But God shows us his love for us in that while we were yet what? It actually says still sinning. While we were still sinning, Christ died for us. What kind of God is this? John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. And then this final word on the cross, Luke 23, 34, from the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. She doesn't realize the impact of what she's doing, nor do you, nor do I. And so Romans 8.34 says, who is to condemn? The implication of asking that question is, it's what he asked her. Where are your accusers? Where are those who want to condemn you? Who is left to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's now able to have that beautiful, glorious part of his role because as he's writing to the Roman church, it's already done. He's ascended. He's with the Father. He's interceding for us. Tetelestai. It is finished. Interceding for us. This, this, this word in the Greek means deal with, make intercession, approach, appeal. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing with the Father. Why do we need an advocate, an intercessor, or a mediator? Why do we need that? Because, my friends, we're guilty, are we not? You see, those who uh, withhold their willful admission, their humble confession that they've sinned, never make it to the cross. They stand on their rightness. They stand on their righteousness. No, I'm right here. Okay, 
that won't get you to the cross. It only puts your pride on display. And that's sad. So, I finish with this. A few passages where your peace with God is secured. Hebrews 7, 24 to 25, but he holds his priesthood permanently. Thank the Lord. It's not, it doesn't have to be like renewed, like some membership to heaven. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Revelation 12, 10 to 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. They've been martyred. They didn't love their lives enough to deny the Christ. Ephesians 3, 11 and 12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Think about her. Think about how Jesus handled this. Think about what He's shown you today from His Word. And if you haven't already, make things right with Him right now. Father, thank You Thank you for your patience, your kindness, your gentleness, your mercy, your grace. I pray, O oh Lord, for all that it has cost you to secure this peace for us. May we live like redeemed people. We wander away. We forget these things and we start looking more like the world than we do our Christ. I thank you, O Lord, on behalf of my brothers and sisters here and anyone who hasn't reconciled with you yet, I pray that that would take place even now. It's not too late if a person yet breathes, if there is a heartbeat, if they're able to hear with ears to hear, may they hear now. Thank you, Lord for being our advocate, for being our intercessor, for being our mediator. In you, O oh Lord, we have been made whole. We've been cleansed. We've been forgiven. Thank you, oh thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.